0: When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Bogan. And now here's Jeff Bogan and Jeff Shade.
1: Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade. And as always, you know, I'm just here to ask the questions for you. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Jeff Hogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Jeff, how you doing this weekend?
2: It's always a good day when I'm with you and with the listeners here and doing well.
1: Yeah, likewise too, Jeff. It is always a good time when we're here with the greater Tucson area and the listeners because uh, we really do appreciate them. And by the way, if you have a question or comment about our show, you can reach us by going to the website primret.com. We always love to hear from you. Jeff, let's start off with the way that we do most weeks, and that is talking about current events. I saw an article here from a person who said the S&P 500's up over 18% NASDAQ at 40% in 2023. The market is doing great. And what she's alluding to is those are the headlines. But she says, are you kidding me? Stop reading what's in front of you in the news and start reading between the lines. She says that there is some information between the lines that they just don't want you to know. So is the market doing great or are they just trying to uh, snowball us here a little bit?
2: The market is doing great. I mean, from the standpoint of where it's come from its bottom trough, you know, from the bottom. However, if you look back two years from right now, all the indexes are down. Well, not every index on the planet, maybe, but at least the th- th- three majors, the NASDAQ, Dow, and the S&P, two years ago, they were higher than they are right now. So does that sound good? Well, it, all it means is we rode the market down into the abyss. There was a lot of selling, and there's been some buying back. There's a lot of uh, new millionaires and billionaires created over the last decade or so that don't understand fundamentals. They just understand if you throw money at the market, it goes up, so they just keep doing it. You know, there was an article I read, and maybe I, I think I shared it with you as well about John Malden, who talks about cycles you know cycles are everything the thing is is if you don't believe them then you do irrational things and right now you know we're in an economic cycle where we're in a contracting period you know money supply is going down it's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking at unprecedented levels in fact i mean depressionary type levels down 5.8 annualized that's a reduction in actual currency Yet somehow GDP continues to look like it's going up. You know, some of this money, the stimulus money, the billions and trillions of dollars that have gone into stimulus is still out there. You know, it hasn't been spent yet. A lot of that's just gone into the market and driven prices up, but it's sitting there as equity. But does that equity really do anything? No, it's just kind of a, a number as to what somebody paid for stock at its last trade, you know, and then they times that by the number of shares and that's somehow everything's worth so much more. But is it really, or is it just because somebody had some money they didn't know what to do with, so they, you know, put it in the market? The other thing that's up is uh, you know infrastructure spending. There's a lot of companies that are scared of the market. They're not even buying their own stock. They're selling their own stock. Well, what are they doing the money? They're buying a lot of fixed investments. That's a lot of the GDP growth, the gross domestic product growth isn't consumer goods, isn't toys and cars and the discretionary items so much as it is discretionary, but there's a lot of business money that's been gathered up. A lot of companies have hoarded cash and you know some of them are buying back their own stock for one thing that's just driving the market up because they're trying to employ this cash into something a little bit uh, better, buy stuff, now because, you know, borrowing cash later is going to cost money, so might as well try to get everything done you can now. The other thing is they're doing a lot of uh, infrastructure, like uh, companies buying bigger buildings, expanding their equipment. Not a ton, but that's been a big part of the GDP growth, far as I understand it, and as I read, but you know we've also got you know I mean crazy stuff happening with consumer debt. You look at the credit card balances have gone over a trillion dollars. I believe that's for the first time ever. I've never right. heard of it being that high. Defaults are growing. Earnings, as of last quarter, we haven't got the numbers for the third quarter until October. We still got about a month to go to see how this last quarter really played out. And I'm I'm anticipating probably not as good as people think because summertime a lot of people are on vacations. There's a lot of you know maybe some spending money, but I don't know the, the big corporations. May may not be growing as fast during that time because everybody's kind of using that summer as that kind of a summertime lull in earnings and things. But earnings just from year to year, from a uh, second quarter to second quarter a year ago, we're still down 7%, even though the market seems to be rebounding and be as resilient as ever. So back to this economic cycle type uh, discussion is uh, we're in a cycle, we're in a contraction cycle. Uh, we've been in a decreasing interest rate environment for almost 40 years, which is great for bonds, great for fixed interest, great for uh, making money on even on your safe money. Now, you lose money on your safe money unless you just buy a CD for a year and get to 5%. And then you can at least make money on short-term stuff. But the long-term investments you know, that used to be kind of the hedge in the market haven't been for the last couple of years. The stock market is as sketchy as it can be. They've got companies like NVIDIA that, you know, are probably doing the same thing as and I haven't looked at their balance sheets, but you know, NVIDIA came in with stronger than expected earnings because of this AI hype. I get that. But their price earnings ratio was still 250. That means, you know, is that company gonna really double or triple in size? It's already so big. Can it? I don't think it can. So I mean the price earnings ratio should be somewhere in line with growth rate. So if the company's growing at 50, I'm okay with a 50 price earnings ratio. I don't think that company earnings or revenues are going to be growing at that uh, rate of speed especially with the competition coming in yet the stock goes to $400 and they come out with this blockbuster earnings report and it's still at 150 well, is that really sales? Or was it just orders that they counted as sales? Or was it products that were created? I remember back in the time when, uh, I'm jumping around here, I'm sorry, I get kind of ahead of myself, ADHD kicking in here, but you know, it reminds me of the dot-com bust when the dot-com companies, like Cisco, I'll name one of them, Cisco, everybody knows Cisco is. So they, if you don't, you should. I mean, it's one of the 30 Dow components and it's been there forever. But, you know, there was a time when Cisco was actually booking a sale as soon as the product was made, boxed up and stuck on a truck for shipping, even if it hadn't been bought yet or paid for. And so they were actually booking sales and creating this uh, fake growth rate as to whatever it wanted to basically dictate based on production. Those games can still be played a little bit. And I kind of anticipate NVIDIA might be playing some of those games to try to get their uh, stock propped up. Yeah, it might be a hundred or a $200 stock, but I just don't think it's a $400 stock. And there's a lot of things that are just, in in my opinion, a disconnect. I'm just talking about one stock that seems to be getting a lot of press right now Uh, look at Microsoft you know Microsoft's one of the biggest uh, I mean it's a big player in the industry but if you look at it's also a component of the Dow if you look at how the indexes work the indexes are really not even a a real picture of the market anyway Microsoft uh, is roughly eight percent I think a seven or eight percent and Walgreens for example is also in the Dow and it's got like 0.4% market cap but United Healthcare is the biggest one at 9 I believe. So in other words if the Dow has 30 stocks in it and if United Healthcare goes up or Microsoft goes up it makes roughly 15 to 20 times as much an impact on the Dow as Walgreens going up. Or if Walgreens goes down 8 bucks and United Healthcare goes up 1 buck, the Dow goes up. That doesn't make sense to me, right? So there's a lot of just kind of weirdness in what we're seeing in the market and the indexes. Some of these big companies that really can't lose money because they have license to print money. You know, Microsoft, not as much as United Healthcare, but you know, as people get older, everybody gets Medicare supplements and they raise the prices every year, so they're going to make profits and they're going to continue to make the Dow go up regardless of what the economy says, right? So the indexes are kind of a, an interesting point of reference to how the economy's doing, the market's doing. But all it really says is, okay, there's a few companies that are you know stable enough to get a lot of attention and people are buying their stock and driving it up. And if they're a big company, they're a big part of an index, they actually get to drive the index. You know, you've know, you heard of the Magnificent Seven, seven stocks that make up the entire gains year to date of the S&P is made up by seven stocks because they're cap weighted and they're big. NVIDIA being one of them, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and Tesla, and I think it's Tesla. Anyway, there's seven stocks that can attribute to every bit of the earnings based on their cap weightedness. There's more stocks in the S&P 500 that are down year to date than are up, yet the index is up. So to your original question, The indexes are all up. The market is doing great. Okay, the market is doing great. Is the economy doing great? Well, if we have more stocks that are going down than going up, and if only seven stocks are equal to the balance of 493 other stocks as far as net profitability, or the the other 493 stocks are break even, and more of those have gone down than up, I don't think the market breadth is any good. I don't think it's any surprise that when when the market's up 20% and I see people bring their portfolios in, if they've got a a random uh, or diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, how come they're not up 20, 30, or 40? percent like these indexes say they are right they're not unless all they have is an index fund and then they get lucky because they're playing the cap weight game with the index. At the same time, if some of those bigger stocks ever do sell off, then you get a bigger um, butt kicking on the way down, but again, you know, this whole stock market is uh, baffling to me nowadays. I learned fundamentals in college, a business major. You know, I understood uh, as a stock broker, you know, what made a stock go up and what made a stock go down, and generally it was based on fundamentals, earnings growth, you know, market potential, and, you know, bottom line is how many people were willing to buy it, but it seemed to be a more logical reason behind why people were buying stock than there is nowadays. So, when you look at just all the things out there i mean i'm as confused as everybody and uh, the thing that doesn't confuse me however is earnings are down money supply is down there's still enough liquidity out there to be buying the stock market up but that's got to end because the cycle will complete every cycle ends up completing but right now people are not worried about the cycle so they're not capitulating to that cycle when somebody gets, if there if there becomes a bit of news, and by the way, nobody believes that the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates, even though they say they are. I mean, you look at the market, if they believed it, they wouldn't. I mean, they're 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 pricing in a pause. And that's why the market's been going up lately. And occasionally it'll go back down based on a, an economic number that makes sense to make the market go down. But then people forget three days later and start buying again. So, you know, there's going to come a time when the free cash kind of dries up or when even the dumb money investors, not dumb people, I mean, shoot, these people are rich, but they're not investing based on the traditional fundamentals that you know have driven this market for decades and even centuries. It's been more of a, hey, well, this is the way it is. This is the new modern monetary theory. And, well, the market goes up because if it doesn't, the Fed will just print money. Well, wait a minute. They're doing the exact opposite of printing money. They're actually contracting the money supply. It's already retraced over a trillion dollars. Well, that's... Not good news. Well, for the market, it is actually good news. And the fact that we have to kind of reel in this excessive spending over the last decade or so and get somewhere back to a fair market value where people can buy and trade on, you know, fundamental reasons that make sense. I think we'll be in a better position when that happens. But uh, you know, honestly, I don't know when it will happen, but this article you referred to and the money supply tightening and the fact that things are not what they seem because we're not hearing the whole story is absolutely true. And it's what I've been preaching. For the last year and a half is things are not like they used to be things are not logical right now there's an irrational market and i don't want to play in an irrational market even if it's going up because it could also be going down just as fast i'd rather be in something a little bit safe and sane and be the tortoise in the race right now so i don't know if that answered your question i went all over the place but uh, bottom line is there is a lot of disconnect between the information that we're getting and the true information and the condition of our economy right now
1: We're talking with Jeff Hogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management about the market and what's going on today. And Jeff, before we continue, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners how they can have a conversation with you to ask their questions about the market volatility and what they should do. If you're looking for answers, then request your no-cost, no-obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap by calling 520-780-9059. Again, that number 520-780-9059. Now, when you call, you're going to get a friendly voice the other end of the line, more than likely Shelly, who will gather some basic information from you then set you up with a conversation with Jeff to create a path towards your successful retirement. Now, remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could help improve your quality of life in a retirement that could last as long as 30 years you're going to get to ask Jeff your questions and get the answers that you need to put you on the path to a successful retirement again no cost and no obligation for this call 520 780 it's 520 780 or you can also request your complimentary consultation online at premret.com that is p-r-e-m-r-e-t.com Jeff, let's talk about your case of the week. This is something that we do every week where we discuss a case that you've had in the past week or the past two weeks that our listeners can relate to. So Jeff, what's our case of the week this week? Well, this is a a kind of a Fairly common
2: case lately, and this is a person that has done very well saving. They've had you know modest jobs, but they've always lived the uh, rule of thumb to live within your means, and have amassed a, a nice portfolio of about three and a half million dollars, including their home, some real estate, and some investments. Now a few years ago, now they like they have liked the real estate for quite a while. We'll just call Bob and Jane. So Bob has been a teacher at a a high level, making you know six figures plus, and now he's just kind of easing into part time and kind of phasing out in the next couple years. He's 69, she's 68, and they've got some real estate generating, I think, it's about maybe 20 to 25 thousand dollars a year, and um, that's about 1.2 million in equity. They've got about a million dollars already in principal protected annuities. They are not really that crazy about the stock market. They've got a little bit of fidelity and other mutual fund monies. They do have an advisor that has sold them stuff but doesn't really pay attention and does any reviews with them. So that's kind of why they're looking. They really don't have a plan other than a guy that keeps wanting them sell them new annuities. They like the idea of principal protection. They got their annuities five to ten years ago when interest rates were really low. They're not doing very well. They're renewing at horrible rates compared to today's new interest rates. And that that is kind of a, a problem. When insurance companies make one or 2% on your money, they can only maybe double or triple it at best in indexed annuity. But if they're making 5% on your money nowadays and they can double or triple it and they keep one or 2% of that, you can actually do a lot better. So a lot of people are frustrated with the old annuities now that they're not paying as well as the new ones. So he had a proposal from a prior advisor to sell all these annuities and buy new ones. Well, one of them was gonna take a 17% penalty, but it only has two years left to run out of surrender which is ridiculous not to wait. So I said, wait a minute, your broker's going to flip something, make a little commission, and you're going to lose 17%. And the net difference is maybe three to 5%, which means you've got three or four years just to get back to even. But you can move this without a penalty in two years without losing 17% and still make a little bit of money in the meantime. Oh, and by the way, you can take money out of this particular annuity. You can take 10% a year out for the next two years, and you can already reposition that with some of your other money into another annuity. He's got another annuity with one company that will take and actually change that annuity to a new one, but he's got the similar uh, problem. He's gonna lose money. It's gonna be three or four years before he breaks even. Or this particular annuity lets you take up the 20% free withdrawal plus 10% for the following three years while it runs out of its um, surrender period. So instead of cashing all these annuities and losing 15 or 20%, we're going to move them just over the next two or three years, just the penalty-free amounts to establish some good annuities that will allow you to add money to later. And then when they become free and clear, we'll look at the market and and, and not lose him any money. He kind of liked the idea of not losing any money. And that's kind of what made him a little bit freaked out about bailing out and having such big penalties just to get new annuities. And honestly, it seemed like it was really more in the favor of the agent that was going to sell something and make another commission than it would be in him. I don't mind making a commission if you're better off too. I mean, it's a win-win, right? So, But this didn't really seem like a win-win. He could do a lot better by moving him over the next three years rather than moving all at once right now. And still get those higher rates of interest. So we, first of all, curbed the deals that he was already down the road making. So went and canceled those and kind of created another redistribution plan into new fixed uh, index products. The other thing is, is the new ones are a lot better. Now the wife had just inherited some money. So she was actually going to go down the road and put money into one of the annuities that she already has uh, with another company. Uh, and I said, well, just rotate that old annuity with that company into a new annuity company over the next few years, and then use the new money to go into something that you don't even have a different type of product that actually has high upside. So we looked at that. So we basically fixed their fixed index stuff, their principal protection into a more lucrative way going forward. So we reestablished a lot of their money or positioned their money so that over the next three years, they're going to rotate out of those older annuities that aren't paying very well into the new annuities that are based on much higher interest rates. So they'll probably make, I mean, seriously, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in extra returns over the next few decades in their retirement, just by looking at it that way and and upgrading when the upgrades are available. So first of all, we upgraded their uh, fixed products. The other thing is, is they were into real estate. They know they've done well, but he knows that while he's working, if somebody calls in the middle of the night to fix a toilet or somebody moves out, they can run over and clean it and get a new renter in there or whatever. But once they get retired in the next couple of years, and he's planning on retiring probably into next year, she's just kind of waiting for him to retire because she's kind of, you know, already kind of out of the picture far as her job goes. So, you know, they want to travel. They want to do some fun stuff. So he's saying, you know, he says, I really think I worked pretty hard on 1.2 million to be only making $21,000 net and that's what it was. I found the number. It was a $21,000 net in the real estate cash flows. Although I get some depreciation, she gets my income. I said, well, you like tax uh, advantaged income, right? He says, yeah. He says, I, I really don't think I want to be a landlord. I said, great. You want to retire? Where can you get that same kind of net income? So here's what we did. The 1.2 million, actually, if he sells that over the next few years, he'll end up paying about 200,000 in taxes, meaning he'll have about a million left. He paid about seven or 800,000 for the properties, but he's depreciated a few hundred thousand of it off of that. So He's going to have a significant amount of taxes, maybe 200 of that max, maybe somewhere between 100 and 200 between closing costs, fix-it costs, you know, just just to turn over those properties. So let's say with that million dollars, he can put that into a lerp life insurance retirement plan. He says, "I just want to really give this money to my kids." He says, "You know, I don't really need it. We live well below our means." And I said, "Well, what if we took that million dollars and we created a situation where between that and a couple of dog annuities that you have that uh, we can't really get out of in the next few years, we just take the 10% withdrawals and between." between the real estate money and the other kind of doggy annuity money that we can't rotate out of in the next two or three years, let's just roll that into a LERP, life insurance retirement plan, and generate some tax-free income. He says, well, I guess so. He says, will it still grow like real estate and will it generate, you know, at least $20,000 in income? I says, not only will it grow, but if you took $21,000 out in income, it'll be tax-free. But here's the deal. What if you want extra income, you could either reinvest or give it to your kids while you're alive and create memories instead of just give them a dump of money in the end. Bottom line is, this LERP plan, we could pay into it for 10 years, and starting in year two, take somewhere between 90 dollars and $100,000 in tax-free income out of it. He's like, well, wait a minute. He's, you're talking about a 70 dollars or $80,000 pay raise plus taxes. I said, plus you save taxes, right. That's the equivalent of about $150,000 in income from other sources. Do you think you could make $150,000 a year off of $1.2 million in real estate? Well, no way. I said, well, there you go. You just got an upgrade. He says, uh, well, actually, when we first started talking about it, we start, started talking about just the real estate money, and it came out about sixty or $70,000. He goes, well, wait a minute. If that's tax-free money, he says, can I add to it? And that's why we ended up coming around and saying, Hey, what if we uh, just, these doggy annuities that you have to take money out 10% at a time that you just bought a few years ago, you know, we can just liquidate over time, add some money to your real estate money, amortize that million dollars, basically pay in over a a 10-year period of time into the LERP, get some interest on that money while you're doing it, and then uh, in 10 years, you you basically have a tax-free retirement life. Bottom line is, when we when we ended up looking at the next 30 years, they're in the late 60s, but let's say they live into their 90s, 95, uh, they're in really good health and uh, probably get preferred rates on their insurance products based on the fact they really have no issues. So bottom line is, over the next 30 years, if they live to 100, their actual out-of-pocket tax expense is going to be about 6.5% based on the money that they could pull out of this plan. Now, they may not want to pull this money out of the plan. They might want to leave a little bit of money in the plan so that their kids get a bigger tax-free uh, retirement, maybe. But as it is, even if they took approximately $3.5 million in income, tax-free income, by doing this LERP program and still leaving over a half a million intact for them, that's if they max out the withdrawals, they're still going to leave about $5.5 million in assets to their children based on their home, based on uh, the annuities they have, based on the other investments. So bottom line is they were in a situation where you know they had crappy annuities that weren't paying. They would have probably lived on eh, somewhere between eighty to a hundred thousand dollars a year. Now we're now we're bumping their income to so between like a hundred and fifty and two hundred fifty a year, paying a lot less taxes and still even five and a half million dollars to their heirs when they die. They thought this was a serious upgrade in the situation that they were in. All they had before was a do-it-yourself plan at uh, Fidelity that they could pick and choose their mutual funds, and they hadn't really been doing that good in their opinion on that real estate that caused a lot of headache and turmoil trying to find renters and clean up and pick up after themselves and maintain it that they now got rid of so they can truly retire and bump their income by about eighty thousand dollars a year. Oh, not just eighty thousand dollars. That was just on the LRP conversion between the real estate. The other thing that they did is if they had uh, just rough figures about a million and a half in uh, principal protection that was making two percent, or in other words thirty thousand a year, and now they're making say six on average. That's another fifty or sixty thousand a year in growth on those uh, strategy to those uh, investment products that they weren't going to get because they upgraded into a, a, a new strategy that was still principal protected. So. There's a lot of upgrade opportunities. There's a lot of ways to get you out of the risk. They don't have to be in the market. I think all we had in the market here in this overall plan was maybe about $300,000 left of the, of the 3 million outside of their home. Only about half a million dollars or less would be even exposed to the market. And right now, we're not exposed to the market. We're just exposed to short-term interest that's you know paying a guaranteed rate of return that can pay their bills and leave them uh, plenty of liquidity for everything that they need. So... That's the plan of the week. Very typical situation. Somebody wanting to actually retire and get out of their real estate and upgrade some old annuities.
1: That's a a common thing around here,
2: but it's uh, possible and uh, uh, easy to do.
1: Jeff, based on our conversation here about our case of the week, I'm willing to bet that our listeners have some questions about what you might be able to do for them. So if you've got questions, we invite you to call us to request your complimentary Premier Retirement Roadmap. Just a friendly conversation with Jeff that'll cover a wide range of topics based on your individual situation so that you can proactively adjust your financial plan to address your retirement journey and any blind spots that may hinder you from reaching your goal. So if you're not on the right course, when would you like to make some adjustments? I would bet that it is right now. Again, no cost, no obligation whatsoever. That number to call, 520-780-9059, 520 One call could make all the difference. You can also request your complimentary plan online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. If you're just joining us, this is Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan. I'm Jeff Shade. And if you want to hear the show again, don't worry. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan. You'll get this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your path towards a successful retirement. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be answering listener questions and more when our show continues right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk.
0: can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan, and you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan and Jeff Shea. Welcome
1: back to Premier Retirement with Jeff Hogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management offices right here in Tucson, also up in Mesa. If you're up that way, once again, the number to call for questions, comments about our show, 520-780-9059. It's 520-780-9059. And again, if you would like your no cost, no obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap Review, call that number 520-780-9059 or request it online at premrent.com. This is the part of the show, of course, every week where we answer listener questions. Jeff, we'll kick it off with Roger listening to us in Tucson. Roger says, I'm 64, just retired in June. My wife is 60, but she is still working. My wife is a big believer in holding a balanced fund with a mix of stocks and bonds. Now, I agree this is easy and effective during the accumulation phase, but now that I've shifted to the distribution phase, I want growth assets and income assets in totally separate funds. What are your thoughts on this strategy?
2: Well, Roger, it's obvious you've been listening to my show, or you have somehow aligned your values and thoughts with mine. Maybe your wife needs to listen a little bit, get June to tune a little bit, and she'll hear this enough times. Maybe she'll be corrected in a nice, uh, subtle way, uh, rather than you having to pick on her to to make her change her mind. I, I know spouses don't like to do that, but maybe they hear it from a third party, they'll come around. Balance fund with mix of stocks and bonds is Wall Street's way of having you just leave your money there so they can continue to ding you with fees and they don't really care about your income plans, livelihood, or your whether you lose money. It's really all about their profits, not about your profit. It was about your profit. You know, they let you go to cash or, you know, be a little bit more vigilant in the way they manage money. However, the market is the market. It's the big macro economy of uh, all the holdings in, uh, you know, equities of every company out there, right? And bonds, the same thing. So we saw stocks uh, sell off uh, last year. We also saw bonds sell off as interest rates go up. Everybody wants a new bond with a higher interest rate than the old bond with a low interest rate. So they sell off and the old bonds lose money. So you can lose money in stocks and bonds. It didn't used to be that way. For 40 years, every time the stock market would get uh, funky, you'd just go into bonds and you'd make a little bit of interest. And typically when the market would get funky, they'd lower interest rates or uh, in order to create more liquidity because it's the modern monetary theory, right? Just print money, so to speak, uh, keep lowering interest rates and keep uh, creating, uh, you know, more turnover with, uh, you know, more cash out there, more M2 money supply that we talked about in the first segment. With all that extra cash, of course, it props the market back up. So then you get this never ending situation where bonds keep getting better, stocks keep getting better. And every time the stocks get uh, worse, they just print money or do quantitative easing, meaning, you know, lower interest rates. So, you know, people have more of an incentive to stay in the stocks. They can get money cheaper and do all their stuff with cheap borrowed money instead of their actual, Uh, savings and they can put that in the market. So, you know, overall, things have been good, you know, in a pretty good trend other than a couple of, you know, hiccups in 2000 where we needed a correction. and 2008, when the banks uh, got a little out of control, we needed a correction. But uh, overall, that situation has been, you know, pretty bullish for uh, a decade, including bonds. Not now. So you can lose money in stocks and bonds. We just learned that. So you should also learn that, you know, if you're in an income phase where you want to start drawing income out of your investments, you've already accumulated what you've accumulated doing the stock and bond thing. And that's great because the timing when you did it was the best, you know, some of the best timing that we've had in history where both bonds and stocks are going up at the same time. So you really couldn't lose with a stock and bond mix for a long, long time. Now you can lose with a stock and bond mix. You can lose it at the same stinking time. There is no hedge, in 60, 40%. I mean, why do you even balance it with equities that can go the same direction at the same time. That's not diversification. What you need in diversification is you need some assets that are not correlated the same way with the market. So the market is going down because, uh, or market gets pressure to go down, even though it's not because there's a lot of money out there still going in. So basically, you know, the stock and bond is really a Wall Street thing. Where do you go with your other money? Okay, well, I like principal protection. Here's the deal with uh, what we're doing with principal protection. You can buy short-term, even government bonds that pay somewhere between 4 and 5% or better. You can hold them for three to six months, there's no risk there. You can buy CDs that are short term. There's maybe no risk, it depends on the safety of banks and how how, uh, solid the FDIC wants to be when the uh, banking crisis comes. But, and I think there may be one based on the fact that no banks want to loan. So where do you put your money and do what you want to do, Roger? And basically, you'll get out of what June wants to do. June wants to do the traditional way. You're just going to ride the roller coaster. And by the way, every time you need money, you're going to lose money every time the market's down. So it is not a recipe for success in retirement when you need your money. So you're correct. Principal protection, how do we get that? Right now, not losing money is more important than making money, even though you can make money on safe stuff. Short-term bonds, not long-term bonds, are one way to do that and principal protected accounts that insurance companies use where they ladder a bond portfolio and they don't really care about the price of bonds going up or down because they're maturing on a daily basis and they've already established their cash flow for the next few decades. So an insurance company can manage a bond portfolio better than you and I can, and they can use that interest based on using leverage through options on the market indexes. So you get the best of both worlds. So if you want a mix of stocks and bonds, why don't you protect your assets with bonds that don't lose value to you that you basically pass that risk on to an insurance company and let the insurance company bet the interest on market so in the years or the time frames year two years three years whatever the time frame is that you want to look at the market if the market goes up during that period of time you make money but if it goes down you don't lose money that's a much better hedge than the old rule of thumb where you actually got to make money on bonds when the stock market didn't make money so you always had that oh either or type proposition I don't think that proposition is going to come back anytime soon with the Fed telling us that they're going to keep raising interest rates. That's good for insurance companies who can use their new money to buy higher interest rate bonds and invest that money in options that are related to the market so you get the upside, but also be protected on the downside. So my opinion is the insurance companies over the last 20 years or so have come up with a product and a strategy that basically has saved the day from this big market cycle where we would have to otherwise wait for the bond market and the stock market to turn around, where we go through maybe a, another lost decade, a 10 year period where the stocks go up and down and up and down and all over the place. and every time you spend money, you're either locking in a loss or a little gain, and you end up with less money at the end of 10 years, you know, than you started with. Now, it's not necessarily bad to spend some of your retirement funds in retirement, but you don't want to draw it down to where every time the market has a hiccup, you keep on locking in losses, and you run out of money by the time you're 80. I mean, because I assume you want to live in retirement maybe a little longer than that, or even if you don't want to, you might anyway. So, we need a long-term plan where you don't lose money. Not losing money is a lot more important, and, you know, June's plan still puts you in a place where you'll lose money over time. Roger, your plan, to protect some of those assets or most of those assets, and I'm with you on that.
1: Roger, thank you so much for listening to us in Tucson. I hope that answered your question. And of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Jeff, our next question uh, this week comes from Bill, who's listening to us in Casa Grande. Bill says, I am 66 and thinking seriously about retiring this winter. I've heard you talk about sequence of return risk and how retiring at the wrong time can have a great effect on returns on your investments. Is this year the wrong time to retire, considering that we still have higher-than-normal inflation and market volatility? Well, you know, just from a
2: standpoint of just pure logic, if you work another year, you do pad your retirement by a little bit. But, you know, I would put it on a plan and just see if you've saved enough to where it doesn't matter. It's okay to not make money some of those years because what happens in a bad market cycle is the market either goes down, stays flat for a while, you don't make money, and you spend your gains from prior years. You just don't want to spend all of them. The other thing, the sequence of return risk is really about if you have all of your money in the stock market and it goes down, And I've shared the story about Norm, who retired right at 2000, and the market went down for the next three years. I mean, it went down really hard, but he's spending his money out of the market while it's going down. I think if you're going to retire, make sure you have enough money in principal protected accounts so that if you have a million dollars, you don't stick it all in the market and lose 50% of it while you're spending it, and then only have about a quarter of it left in the next three years if the market tanks like it did in the dot bomb crash. But you know, have two-thirds of it, let's say, in principal protected securities, even some cash that you can live on while that market cycle improves and comes back. Now the market does always come back, but it doesn't come back if you spend some of that money along the way. So anything, and that's kind of based on this last question that Roger was asking me, is like, now that you've shifted into the distribution phase, you want growth assets to be totally separate. Those growth assets are going to have periods where they go down and they need to be left alone. If they're going to grow, they can't be spent. So you got growth assets that are typically more volatile and take the biggest hit in bad markets, and then you've got the safe assets that you can use during your your income phase. So as long as you have income to bridge the gaps, as long as you have enough buffer so that you can have some zero years, remember, if you have some zero years and over three years you spend, let's say, five or 6% of your total net worth because you didn't make any money, you're down five or 6%, as long as you didn't lose. If you have got all that in the market and you spend money while the market goes down 50%, you might be stuck down at about 40%. How are you gonna make it back if you're still spending the same amount you did when you had the full value of your your assets working for you. But again, if you're only down five or six percent because you spent some money and you were making some, and you never lost, when that market cycle rebounds, you remember what it rebounded after it went down 50 percent over three years. The first year 2003 out of the gate was like 25 percent, and it had some really good double-digit returns over the next few years to make up the difference between that 50 percent loss that the s p had in that crash in 2000. Another 50 percent crash in 2008. There were some really good years again, a 30% year in 2013, which was kind of the end of that rebound years when the market finally came back after the 2007 and seven and eight crash. That was when it finally got back to even. But uh, what you don't want to do is write it down to half your money, spend all the profits as it grows, and then when you have that 30% increase, that 30% increase only happens on half your money. That means you only made 15%, but you will still lost 50% and locked it in when you spent money. If you're following me, bottom line is you need to spend money that's not down. It's okay to spend principal. It's just not okay to start locking in losses. So again, the sequence of returns only has to do with spending money if the market Risk is beating you up, and you're using that money. If you're not using that money, then sequence of resist really, really doesn't come into play. If you have a plan, and you can see that there's some buffer for some bad years in there, and that's what we do. We lay it out in a spreadsheet, and you know it might come in that. It makes more sense for you to work another three to five years. I've had that happen a lot of times. People say, I want to retire in three years. Am I okay? Well, you might be, but it seems like if we don't make any money on the investments that you're making, you might be a little tight. Maybe you ought to consider five years. Other people say, gosh, I think I might have to work till I die. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You've got income from Social Security, pensions, no debt, and you've got $4 million. You're going to be okay as long as we don't lose $4 million or two or three of it. So again, you don't have to have $4 million to build a plan, but let's say you have only six or $800,000 that you need to fill the gap between Social Security and pensions. Well, if that's enough in a safe place or you only need to have maybe 400 of it, to build an asset that creates the extra income that you, 20 or 30 or whatever thousand dollars you need in income to make sure your bills are paid for the rest of your life, then you got an extra $200,000 in you know slush money that would give you the confidence to go ahead and return right now. So again, everybody's situation is an it depends situation. How much do you plan to spend? How much did you save? How risky do you wanna be? And how safe do you wanna be? And how much do you wanna convert into assets that protect balances, give you predictable or even guaranteed lifetime income and then go from there. But you need to see it on a plan first. I can't really tell you if it's time to retire now or time to retire in 10 years until we see the whole picture.
1: Bill, we appreciate you listening to us in Casa Grande. And if you have questions with Jeff, again, that number 520-780-9059. It's five two zero seven eight zero ninety fifty nine. And Bill, will be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Next question, Jeff, is Chuck listening to us in Oro Valley. Chuck says, my wife and I are both 64, plan to retire in four years. At this point, we do not have a plan for long-term care and how to pay for it. I'm worried that when the time comes, either of us will have too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to cover even a year of long-term care. Do you have a suggestion as to how to financially plan for long-term care expenses? Wow. Well, if you're looking at having only one year worth of financial
2: expenses, I'm guessing that you've got Social Security and a nice pension to cover your bills and not a whole lot in savings. I mean, savings can grow double or triple. You know, you can double them two or three times if you leave them alone, you know, over the next couple of decades. I'm assuming you're healthy now and expect, you know, that long term care situation to be more like when you're in your 80s or 90s. So if you think you only have enough to plan for that based on savings, maybe you ought to just look at your cash flow and see if you can buy a long-term care policy if you're qualified for it. I hate them, actually. I hate the pay-as-you-go policies because if you don't use it, you lose it and you just paid all that money. If you could put what you would pay into a long-term care policy and invest it, just dollar cost average into even the stock market, even in a choppy market, or into something that pays a relatively good, has good upside with some principal protection that has a chance to grow, you might be able to self-insure. But again, it would be a budget situation where you'd have to look at what you can spend, what you can save, whether you can afford long-term care policies. Long-term care policies, the pay-as-you-go version, so far, 100% of them have price increases. Or they'll say, oh, your premium doesn't increase, but we have to reduce the benefits because of our claims uh, liabilities and people are living too long, so we have to save the day and stay in business, so we're going to make some alterations as you go. Most people get burnt out of price increases, end up dropping their policies and end up using them when they don't have insurance. So I'm not a big fan of the pay-as-you-go, like health insurance type policies for long-term care. I prefer more like a what we call asset-based long-term care, which is either through LERPs, life insurance retirement plans, where you have a death benefit. Maybe you've got a hundred or $150,000 you think is only enough to cover you for one year in a nursing home. But if you put that into a policy that had $400,000 worth of death benefit that you could use for long-term care, Oh, and if you don't use it for long-term care, your heirs get $400,000, that's pretty good. Oh, and if you happen to need some to live on, you can spend some of that $400,000 on a tax-free basis. Doesn't that sound like a little bit better deal? It's kind of a cake and eat it too type plan. It's called asset-based long-term care. So again, depending on your situation, how much you have in savings or how much you can divert out of your cash flow, based on what your spending plan is versus your income plan is, you might be able to afford a LERPA life insurance retirement plan that set up more, maybe less for income that I've always talked about, maybe less for a death benefit, which would just make your heirs rich, not you, but also be there for long-term care should you need it and also be there for you if you need an income raise or if you need to just withdraw a little bit for a purchase or an emergency down the road that wouldn't affect you on a tax basis because life insurance is tax-free and uh, if you park some money in that type of a policy and do it the right way you can always have access to that money on a tax-free basis and whatever you don't lose goes to your heirs or is there to supply you with the cash flow you might need for the long-term care that you're talking about terminal illness even home care and other chronic illness type situations. So again, there are some very creative LERP programs that we call asset based long term care plans. You might want to consider those. But you know, let's look at your overall situation. I don't know how much you have in saving. I don't know how much your cash flow is, but when we find that all out, we might be able to make a better plan for you that doesn't keep you guessing.
1: Chuck, we appreciate you listening to us in Oro Valley. And, of course, you're going to get Jeff's book, Retirement, The Road Ahead. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the air, you can get it to us by calling 520-780-9059. That's 520 780 Better way, I think, is to go to premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com, and leave your questions there in our contact form. And once again, you can call 520 780 If you want to request your complimentary Premier Retirement Roadmap, friendly conversation with Jeff that'll cover a wide range of topics based on your individual situation that may uncover some blind spots, That may hinder you from reaching your retirement goal. If you're not on the right course, when would you like to know it? Probably right now before it's too late to do anything about it. You can also request your Premier Retirement Roadmap online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, in the few minutes that we have left in the program today, I want to talk about some investing alternatives for conservative investors Everybody, I think, has some level of risk tolerance, but some people have more of a risk tolerance than others. So let's talk about some alternatives for conservative investors. Now, the first one would be cash, but they're also cash equivalents. What are some of the cash equivalents that people should consider if they are just very, very conservative?
2: Well, you know, CDs actually have uh, become a great alternative for some interest with your bank money. I have uh, still finding people that have you know one hundred fifty thousand dollars in checking and savings making one percent when they could get a CD that pays four. I think for your bank money, go into CDs. For your investment money, because we want that to be liquid and nimble and get back in the market when there's buying opportunities. I think the cash equivalent would be you know money market rates. Sometimes uh, some of the retail accounts actually do better than some of our institutional accounts that we use. But you know, we love ETFs that are totally liquid exchange-traded funds that are full of short-term investment bonds. Bloomberg has one. There's one called SGOV, S-G-O-V, that we like. It's just basically really short-term bonds, and every time one expires, they replace it with a new one with a little bit higher interest. You know, even net of fees, we're getting somewhere between 3 and 5% on uh, returns on that uh, so far this year. And know, a volatile stock market environment, I think that makes a lot more sense than uh, keeping the cash, making zero, especially if you have to pay a fee because you have an advisor. And I certainly am okay with you paying a fee if you have an advisor, because you should get some value added, but if they're just parking your money and not doing anything, then you should just do it yourself and buy it in a retail account. But bottom line is there are some alternatives. The other thing is, is You know, the penalty-free portion of your annuities, your principal-protected accounts, are also available as, in in my opinion, a cash alternative. If you look at your liquidity picture, if you have a million dollars in indexed annuities and $100,000 in the bank, you really have 200000 liquid because you can get 10% of those annuity funds that are principal-protected out. That's kind of a cash equivalent, in my opinion, because it can be in your bank account in a matter of a few days to cover that. Another big one, but honestly, this is the asset class people forget mostly, and that is life insurance. I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about term insurance where you're just trying to make somebody rich when you die. I'm talking about your own tax-free bank where you put money in. I mean, let's just give you an example. If you could walk into a bank and say, you know what, I really want this money to be liquid. I want to park some money here. I want to be able to get it. And I don't want to pay taxes on it because I get really tired of buying CDs and getting taxed on it, even though I don't use the money in the bank. Says, well. Gee, we just happen to have that available for you. In fact, we're offering a 6% rate of return on our savings account. How much would you like to put in? Gosh, well, I'd like to put in a whole lot, but I only have a little bit of money. You go, well, great. Well, what if you could go down the hallway and borrow money at 3% and come park it here at 6% and there's no limit on how much you could borrow? Now, let me back up here. So wait a minute. You can borrow money from the same institution at 3% or 4% or even 5%. And you could put it in a savings account that makes six. Wait a minute. Why would you not do that? Well, why would you not do that? Oh, and I don't have to pay taxes on it while it grows and I don't have to borrow money from if I don't want to. Well, that's what you can do with alert, life insurance retirement plans. An insurance company will invest your money in a ladder of bonds where they know that they're getting their cash flow needs met. They've got your money in a safe place, typically government bonds, investment grade bonds are better, stuff with next to zero default rate. If you look at their overall portfolios is in the point something less than 1%, percent, point two or 3% default possibilities on, on the bonds and stuff that they buy in their portfolios. So they really don't have any risk in their bond portfolio other than the value of that portfolio. Well, that doesn't bother you. Okay, so insurance companies will invest that. They'll take the interest just like they do on principal protected accounts. They will invest it in options. And if you look at historical returns, somewhere between six and 7% is reasonable. That's even based on interest rates that were available a few years ago. Based on the new interest rates, they can probably even do better than that. But let's just go with the overall low interest rate type environment that we've been in and say, hey, if they can make 6% on my money, but here's the catch. What do you have to do to let an insurance company park all your extra cash in a bucket for you to use on a tax-free basis. Well, you have to buy a little bit of life insurance. So we use index universal life insurance because the requirement is you're allowed to buy a lot less insurance than you would on, say, a whole life policy, which is what most insurance agents and most insurance companies would love you to buy. Or you have to buy, like, let's say, a million dollars worth of life insurance in order to put a couple hundred thousand dollars away in cash. Well, what if you're only going to put a couple hundred thousand dollars away in cash? Or let's say you were going to put a half a million dollars away in cash. The whole life might make you buy a million and a half to two million dollars of insurance, and you have to pay for that cost of insurance for the rest of your life, meaning that if you make any money on your cash, it's just going to go to the cost of insurance. Well, what if you could buy, let's say, $50,000 worth of insurance or $100,000 worth of insurance, you put 500 hundred thousand dollars in there, your insurance policy is only six hundred, meaning you only have to add a hundred thousand dollars of insurance to make this thing legit. Okay, so now the five hundred thousand is growing at six percent, let's just say, which is thirty thousand a year. The cost of that hundred thousand dollars of insurance if you're sixty years old is probably around twelve hundred bucks. So you have like, what, $29,000 in profits that's uh, extra that you get to accumulate on that account. And let's say, oh, for income purposes, I want to borrow $50,000 a year. So you borrow $50,000 a year. Well, what's the interest on $50,000 a year at, uh, let's say, 5%, 1% less? You pay $2,500 in interest, but your account just made $29,000 in interest on the gross that you put in. That's net of the cost of insurance. So your account still grows, and you borrow $50,000 and that interest goes against the interest that you made. Next year, you do the same thing. Okay, so you borrow another 50000 Now you have to pay what? 5000 in interest, oh, well, at this point, now you're making 31000 in interest because you're making interest on the interest minus the cost of insurance. And the older you get, pretty soon, you don't have to buy any insurance. When you're in your 90s, you don't even have to buy insurance. You just get to play this interest rate game. So bottom line is you can park a whole lot of money. What you do is you borrow against that ever-growing cash value that you stuffed into an insurance policy, and it continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and grow till you die And maybe half a million dollars turns into a million and a half in cash flow, tax-free. And then when you die, there's a few extra thousand dollars for your heirs because now you had to buy a little bit of extra money. There's some money left in your account. So that, in my opinion, is an asset class. If you roll it back a little bit, where can you put half a million dollars in, reduce the balance by $50,000, especially if it's a volatile account, and not run out of money in 20 years? I don't know where there is an account like that. But the LERP, the life insurance version, gives you a lot more staying power, a lot more cash flow, a lot less taxes, easy access, up to 90% of your surrender value is how much you can borrow back out of it. So you have to leave a little bit in there just to cover the cost of insurance. But so what? You add the tax savings into that, You know, $50,000 in actual cash flow, you'd have to be withdrawn $75,000 out of an IRA and paying you know, a third of that in taxes to be left with $50,000. So why not pay taxes now, on some of that money, invest in a LERP, do a different asset class. And by the way, that asset class is stealth. When you take that $50,000 a year out or whatever it turns out to be, that doesn't even show up in a 1099 or on your tax returns. You don't have to file taxes on it. You don't have to use it as provisional income to decide how much taxes you're gonna have to pay on your social security. You don't have to use it as income on your tax return so that the Medicare premiums that you pay double or triple like some people do. And when I show these LERPs to people, two out of the last three LERPs
1: that I just presented this last week, of them says, I really like that. We're talking about investing alternatives for conservative investors with Jeff Hogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Once again, if you'd like to talk to Jeff about your individual situation, get your no cost, no obligation retirement roadmap, call 520-780-9059. It's 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Well, Jeff, we're out of time for this week. I'm going to thank you for your time, but most of all, thank the fine people here of Tucson, Arizona for joining us. For Jeff Ogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most
0: stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona state-registered investment advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims-paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.